Hello and welcome to Horror Culture Trash Shovel, a show that discusses all of the masterpieces and trash the pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And we are back for what is going to be our last ever original versus remake in this format. Yes. Would you care to explain? I further? would. I would. So as you guys know, we've recently reached 300 episodes. And with 300 comes a time for change. And with that being said, going forward, Original versus Remake episodes will be released on the last Tuesday of each month as part of our weekly episodes, rather than on the last Friday of each month. Um, this is mostly because we are going to incorporate part of our Original versus Remake episodes into our weekly episodes. So instead of being a best and worst of the month at the end of these episodes, there will be a best and worst of the week during every episode going forward from now on. Yeah, yeah. So we can maybe talk about them a little more than just, oh, I like that, or yeah. I didn't like that, you know, because, you know, if you've listened for long enough, sometimes I struggle to remember what I've watched within yeah. the month. Uh, so it'd be nice to have it, these films maybe a little fresher in my memory. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And gives us a chance to highlight some of the better stuff that we've watched where... At the end of the Original Versus Remakes monthly episodes, it was always a quick, honourable mention. Yeah. We, we get a little more time to talk yes. about. Yes. And we yes. watch a lot of shit, so there'll always be something for us to talk about during that section. Um. So yes, Original Versus Remake is not dying, it's just uh, evolving. Yeah, it, it's not It's not going anywhere necessarily, it's just moving yeah. slightly um, to a different date. Um. I think also... There's only so many shitty horror remakes you can watch. <laughs> have, we, have we not been through them all? Sadly not. Sadly not. And that's why it's not dying. Because we're still... We're not even halfway through. We've got so many to go. <laughs> They're all from the 2000s. Well, today we haven't even got a horror film for you. No. Today... But we... still from the 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it looks like a horror film from the 2000s. Today, we are talking about both versions of Assault on Precinct 13. We're not including Rio Bravo. No. Even though technically both are remakes of Rio Bravo, they're not official remakes of Rio Bravo. So we're skipping that for today and we're just talking about both films with the same name. And uh, starting with our poll results, oh. where 75% of you... Voted for the original. Yay. And 25% of you voted for the remake. Oh, that's a shame, I guess. Um, yeah, so. That's we'll, a shame. We'll save it for when we get to it. Let's, let's <laughs> yeah. celebrate the genius that is John Carpenter and his fantastic uh, masterpiece that is Assault on Precinct 13 from 1976. John Carpenter wrote and directed it. The master of horror and suspense behind Halloween, They Live, Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, The Fog, The Thing, so many more. Escape from LA, Ghosts well, of Mars, We don't need wars. to mention those. Um, so following the release of Dark Star, his first feature, John Carpenter was approached by a group of investors who gave him uh, the opportunity to make whatever kind of film he wanted, uh, albeit with a very limited budget. That budget being $150,000. Although Carpenter wanted to make a Western, he knew he wouldn't have the resources to make a period piece. 
He wrote this film as a highly stylized modern day Western, essentially remaking Rio Bravo from 1959, which was directed by Carpenter's hero, Howard Hawks. Carpenter acknowledges this debt to Hawks and Rio Bravo by using the pseudonym of John T. Chance for his film editor's credit, which was the name of John Wayne's character in Rio Bravo. Carpenter also said it's the most fun he had making a film. And uh, what a film it is. It's for its runtime length. It doesn't have a lot of scenes, uh, which was actually intentional on John Carpenter's part. Yeah. In order to both maximize the very limited budget that had been allocated for production and to preserve editing choices inside the main story's focus. Carpenter wrote every scene to run as long as he could within the bounds of still making sense and filmed them to take up even more time on film uh, than they did on page. And it works. It does. In fairness, yes, it's technically a remake of Rio Bravo. And it's hilarious the fact that he paid tribute to Howard Hawks. Instead of giving King money yeah. for the remake rights, he changed the name. Yeah. The other, Howard Hawks watching the film was like, <laughs> wait, this is my film. <laughs> and he tries to do but no, I, I swapped the name in the editors. <laughs> Well, yes. Right. Um, I haven't seen Rare Bravo. No, I haven't, no. unfortunately. Um, I think, really, for any um, John Carpenter film, there are moments where he's probably taken from Howard Hawks. Yeah. Um, do we blame him? No. I mean, no. Brian De Palma and Quentin Tarantino have made a career of it. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. obviously, for De Palma, that was uh, Hitchcock. Yes. That he so repeatedly stole from. Yeah. <laughs> and Tarantino to everyone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Usually like cult films yeah. that no one's ever heard of. And you're like, oh my God, how original. Mm-hmm. And then someone on YouTube does a side by side and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. And now I need to watch this. Uh-huh. Um, Japanese film from 1970 that only five people have liked on Letterboxd. <laughs> um... <laughs> Where was I? At the box office. At <laughs> the box office. Um, I don't know how much it made, but it was a bigger hit in Britain than it was in America. Largely because British audiences understood and enjoyed the film's similarity to American westerns, whereas US audiences were too familiar with the western genre to fully appreciate the film. Yeah, I, it come, it's a bit like a, a western, but I thought it was more akin to Night of the Living Dead. Yes. And I there is in many ways more of a horror film than a Western, necessarily. Yeah, there is actually some trivia coming up in regards to Night of the Living Dead. Initially, the film got very little attention in the USA until a British distributor submitted the film into a British film contest where it won first prize and subsequently earned a lot of critical and public praise. The British success then slowed course... um, The British success then slowly caused the film to become more popular back in the USA. And it's thanks to this film that we've got Donald Pleasance playing Dr. Loomis in Halloween because his uh, daughters were big fans of this film. Oh, okay. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think it's interesting that it didn't do well in America because they thought it was a Western. Or it did yeah. well in the UK because they thought of it as a Western. Mm-hmm. If you swapped guns for, you know... Alien goodness. Yeah. <laughs> if they were like alien monsters, you would call this a sci-fi horror. Yeah. You know? Oh, I, yeah. I don't... 
make no mistake, this film has influenced many a horror films. I mean, yeah. you know, it's very much a home invasion film, but in a prison. If they had fangs, it would yeah. be a vampire film. Yeah. It's... I mean, you look at The Purge, you know, the first Purge film mm. um, that was released. It's pretty much the plot of this film. Yeah, You know, it's yeah. people in a house keeping a prisoner in there that people, well, a prisoner, but keeping a person in there who's in danger who a gang of people outside want to attack. So it's, you know, it's, this is a premise that has been done now multiple times since. Um, I don't think any film has quite been able to top it, though, with this premise. I mean, obviously, I've seen Rio Bravo, so this might not even be able to top that. But from what I've seen... I, this is still the film that handles this premise the best. Um, yes. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Do you agree or not? No, I agree. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of more than just The Purge. Because I'm just sat here thinking, well, yeah, it's better than The Purge. Yeah. So you've you've forgot all the other films <laughs> that have done it then, so definitely instantly makes it better. <laughs> there we go. That's true. That is very true. That is very, I'm sure there's a very niche letterbox list. There probably is. Out there. <laughs> Should we talk about our first feature presentation? Yes. For the gang called Street Thunder, it is a day of vengeance. It's war in the streets. It's terror in the night. It's the most shattering assault on a police station in history. They're not afraid to die. Any of them want to rip us apart, no matter what it costs. Assault on Precinct 13, rated R. So we get opening credits. For uh, Assault on Precinct 13, with a theme that goes it does. off. It does. Um, John Carpenter could absolutely have written some classic disco pop anthems yeah. with this synth work. Uh -huh. um, I'm surprised he didn't, and I'm surprised in the 70s that we didn't get lyrics over one, his, over one of his themes. That's true. Like, I could absolutely... Here, somebody doing like a little jingle over the Halloween theme. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't. It was wasn't long after this, was it? Big Trouble in Little China, but that had its own theme song with lyrics. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm thinking what they did. So there's out there. This is very niche. Um, the film Missing, the yeah. uh, Costa Gavras film um, with Sissy Spacek and mm -hmm. Jack Lemmon. They had a, a theme by Vangelis that very haunting, um, synthy theme um for a very haunting film yeah and then they had elaine page do a single where she sang i'm missing <laughs> over it and i'm surprised they didn't do something like that with some of john carpenter's <laughs> I, feel, I feel like it would have kind of worked <laughs> like i definitely yeah, feel no, donna like, summer yeah. could have sang over the assault on precinct 13 theme don't you yeah i absolutely do i yeah. mean my favorite was films is escape from new york you imagine that with vocals yeah <laughs> i feel like if it i feel like if it did it would probably be like someone's walk on wrestling be, yeah that's true who who played the taxi driver in the escape from new york i feel like he could have done like a rap pack version <laughs> of it i'm just uh, yeah i'll probably remember by the end of the episode so I also I oh. found out why you why you recognize and why you appreciate themes from the seventies and eighties more than any other time, because they always have the opening credits with nothing else going on where it forces you to listen it helps. to the theme. It does help. 
It does help. <laughs> I struggle with soundtracks. And, and that's not... Hey, I, don't worry about forgetting the 2005 one. There's a reason for yeah, that. Yeah, but I do <laughs> struggle sometimes. It really has to be... I don't know. Mem- it has to really yeah, be no, memorable absolutely. for me to even contemplate remembering it. Which yeah. seems obvious. I always purposely try and listen out for it, but I mean, a lot of the times... Especially with remix on this podcast, I'm just disappointed. But I love films where the soundtrack is part of the yeah. film. And it doesn't feel like, oh, we should probably have music here. Yeah, John Carpenter nails that. John Carpenter really does nail that. He's so good at... Because it's his vision. It's his film. It's mm-hmm. his... He is an auteur. He knows exactly what he wants. Yeah. And he does compose the music. And so it's perfectly in keeping with his vision as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that John Williams isn't fucking fantastic, mm. despite not being a writer-director. Yeah. You know, it, it's, I'm not saying that this is the only way it works, but it works for John Carpenter because of that, mm-hmm. and which I love. So, in south-central Los Angeles, a local gang called the Street Thunder steals a cache of assault rifles and pistols. At 3am on a Saturday in Anderson, a crime-infested ghetto, a team of heavily armed LAPD officers ambush and kill six members of the gang. Um, I love a film that gets straight to the point. Yeah. Now, the gang is where the Night of the Living Dead yes. uh, trivia comes in. So, John Carpenter said the gang were acknowledged by George Romero's zombies in Night of the Living Dead because they're completely dehumanised. They hardly talk and mm-hmm. almost seem supernatural in their ongoing resilience uh which is such a good touch because it makes sense it does make sense it also means they were probably cheaper to hire yeah yeah because you have to pay people more when they talk on screen (laughs) it's true but it adds i feel it adds to the horror yeah so like there there is more of a maybe a supernatural element to them you question where they've come from yeah are they zombies Mm -hmm. you know who aren't that they don't really have a background. And yeah. that's something from a night of the living dead yeah. that was so scary. You didn't know where they were coming from. They look like humans, but yeah. you weren't quite sure. Uh-huh. So therefore you weren't quite sure how to deal with them. Yeah. Having a sense of mystery surrounding them just makes the film more intense. And it's why the Michael Myers not being Laurie Strode's brother storyline works best for me. Yeah. You know, John Carpenter works best when he puts people that have no reason to go after people against people and yeah because that's the scariest kind of thing that yeah could happen because laurie strode was a victim of circumstance yeah, yeah. this is a lot of parallels These, of halloween absolutely because the the people stuck in the police station in the song yeah. precinct 13 are you know victims of circumstance mm-hmm. they're in they haven't done anything directly to offend any of these people yeah they just the chosen targets and that's something that we all fear, and we fear particularly within these rough areas, yeah. these places where that feel lawless, yeah. that have been left by the wayside. Mm-hmm. I think if you watched this in 1976, you'd definitely have that sense of, fuck, this guy needs to make a horror film. Yeah. Let's go and make a great horror film. And then two years later, he made what is, in my humble opinion, the greatest horror film ever made. Yeah, absolutely. Because, like I was saying, we all have everyone in their towns. You know, we grew up in Coventry. We live in Manchester. 
you know, th- there's always those places where oh, you don't want to go there. You yeah. don't want to go there late at mm-hmm. night because it's been left. Yeah. It's been deserted. And people are, you know, allowed to do whatever they like there. That, that's what we see. Yes. Yeah. And it's very much this film is playing on those fears. Mm-hmm. Um, so later on, the gang's four warlords swear a blood oath of revenge against the police and the citizens of Los Angeles. And this is an actual blood oath. Yeah. They all cut their arms and bleed into a um, mixing bowl. I don't mm-hmm. know where they got the mixing bowl from, but yeah, into a mixing bowl. Yeah. <laughs> and this is, for me, again, the, the supernatural element mm-hmm. to the film. Um, Lieutenant Ethan Bishop, a newly promoted highway patrol officer, is assigned to take charge of the decommissioned Anderson Police Precinct during the last few hours before it is permanently closed. So Ethan Bishop is played by a black actor, Austin Stoker. Yeah. And I think that is also in keeping with Night of the Living Dead, um, having a black protagonist Mm -hmm. within the film. And one thing that I really do appreciate is how the film is, it is honest about race. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't play on stereotypes or falls into exploitation. No. So we have different races on each side. Mm -hmm. And it's not explicitly sort of made to look like a black exploitation film. No, which it could have easily done. Which it could easily have done. You know, around this time, if you've got a black hero at the centre of a film, there's a good chance you're watching a black exploitation film. Yeah. Or you would have the gang be solely black members yeah and the white guys saving the yeah. day yeah no, absolutely in the prison and that in the the jail mm-hmm. the police officers and that that isn't what this film does um uh, which i you know i think is really a good thing yeah yeah <laughs> Want of a better yeah. word. That's very good. That yeah. is. <laughs> so Captain Collins over the radio to Bishop says, uh, there are no heroes anymore, Bishop, just men who follow orders. Mm-hmm. Because this is Bishop's first task. He wants to be a hero. You know, he's asked, do you want to be a hero? Yes, I do. I want to save the day. He said, there are no heroes anymore. Um, only a skeleton crew uh, or a skeleton staff remains at the, uh, the jail. So uh, this includes Sergeant Cheney and the station's two secretaries, Lee and Julie. Um, I'm assuming Lee may be a reference to Janet Lee. Maybe. I yeah. Bet, no, I suppose people were called Lee. L-E-I-G-H. I knew people called Lee. Yeah. I thought it was, but it yeah. probably was. I didn't think back then, but yeah. Yeah. Um, Julie's played by Nancy Loomis with Virginia Woolf hair. You may yeah. remember her from Halloween. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Where she was also having a bad day. She's also having a bad day. She, like, John Carpenter puts this woman through hell. Like, she's <laughs> always having a terrible time. But she's always having a terrible time. Or acting. She's, she's got a very dry sense of humour on her characters. And she's always put through a terrible time before she gets killed. Spoiler alert, she gets Unless killed. Unless you're the fog in Halloween 3. But then she's still... Having a terrible in day. In the fog. She's still having... Oh, she, she doesn't get killed yeah. in the fog. No, she? she's just really inconvenienced yeah. by Janet Lee. She does and seem really <laughs> inconvenienced Halloween 3, she's just like an inconvenienced mother who's had <laughs> enough of her kids. But I think she's inconvenienced by her hair in this one because it's... I don't know what she's trying to do. She's going for some sort of Victorian updo, uh-huh. but it's lost all its life. It's just flopped. 
Um, Lee makes Bishop a coffee <laughs> and uh, she says, Black? And he responds, for over 30 years. <laughs> uh, Bishop also recounts a story of being sent to the station as a child after his father scolds him for swearing in front of his mother. Lee suggests someone got Bishop out of the area just in time. But Bishop corrects her, telling her he got himself out of town when he turned 20. Yeah. And I think that's interesting because he's talking about being brought up in the mm-hmm. area. And she, maybe a microaggression, suggests that somebody must have helped him as a black man in that area. Yeah. For him to become a police officer and to be on the correct side of the law that somebody must have helped him. Yeah. And he said, no, I helped myself. Yeah. You it's... know, I want to be a hero. Uh-huh. I've always wanted to be a hero. Yeah. Yes. You know, I backchatted in front of my mother when I was younger, but I've always wanted to be a hero, however that looked. It's also interesting because it actually happened to someone. Okay. That story. Alfred Hitchcock. Oh. Yeah, that story was taken straight from someone that happened to Alfred Hitchcock. So he got sent to the prison, yeah, prison for the jail. Uh-huh. What are we calling this? A jail? Should we call it a jail? Mm, a precinct? Yeah. Whatever. Whatever comes out of our mouths Police when we station. talk about it. You know what we're talking about. It's around this time we were also introduced to um, <laughs> someone who had their house stolen. House stolen? Oh, <laughs> that is very true. Um, Kathy, played by Kim Richards, she's in the car with her dad, and they're having a chat about her. He wants her to convince his mum to go and live with. Um, we, and I only mention this, it's not important at all, just yet, but I only mention this because this is when we get some fantastic dialogue where she's like, Mr. Seward says that, because he, he's like, needs directions and she spots a police officer and she's like, Mr. Seward says policemen are always there to help whenever you need them. And, uh, dad says, obviously Mrs. Seward has never taken any big steps out of the sixth grade. Yeah. And it's like, it's a nice little, uh, callback to that in Halloween later on. Oh Yeah. Um, and then also in the police station, we obviously we get the black for over 30 years dialogue. And then we get, what a night, a police officer in the station. What a night. We've had three to 12, three, three 12 every 15 minutes, 12 stolen cars, three burglaries, eight aggravated assaults. And it's not even eight o'clock. <laughs> I just thought it was amusing. We've got three lots of great dialogue in a row. <laughs> um, a prison bus commanded by a man named Starker arrives seeking medical help one of three men being transported to the state penitentiary. Napoleon Wilson, a convicted murderer, Wells, and Claudel, who is sick. So, Napoleon Wilson, he's given me Ricky from Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. He does look exactly like Eric Freeman. And I feel like Eric Freeman watched this for inspiration. Because they both play prisoners who liked Mm -hmm. that chat. Um, Because Napoleon Wilson... He seems to get under the skin of one of the wardens in particular mm-hmm. and manages to trip him with his chains. Yes. And so we, we kind of see Napoleon as a, a heartless killer with good banter. Mm-hmm. So the type of anti-hero whose skills might come in handy later yes. on. And who very well, well might survive the film. Who plays Starker? Who does play Starker? Oh, lend himself. <laughs> Charles <laughs> Cyphers. Yes. And his... Fierce sideburns. You thought they were good in Halloween. Woo, those sideburns, you get an extra credit. They are fucking huge in this film. 
Uh, <laughs> they are, yes. So across town, the street vendor warlords drive around looking for people to kill. Um, there's an old lady they yeah. decide not to shoot. There's an old homeless man they decide not to shoot. Um, who they end up killing is an ice cream van driver who has a gun in his ice cream van. Yes. So I question why somebody would go into this area playing music if he's fearful enough to have a gun. Like, how much is it worth? Yeah, I <laughs> really? mean, he immediately, when he starts seeing their car driving around, he looks concerned. It looks yeah. like he either recognises them or he knows because they're driving around looking like that, looking suspicious. Yeah. In that area, he's fucked. Yeah. But he still decides to stay there. And thank God he does, because we get a really iconic scene. Well, we do. Because he he's uh, visited by little Kathy, whose <laughs> dad's on a payphone, because they're lost. Got no, no idea where they're mm-hmm. going. And she wants an ice cream. And she goes up and she asks for a vanilla twist. Jesus. And she's given an ice cream and she goes back, going back to her father, who's too busy on the payphone trying to figure out where the fuck he is. She then realises that she hasn't been given a vanilla twist. She's been given a vanilla ice cream. Whilst she realises this, the ice cream man has now been shot. Yeah. So when she arrives back at the ice cream, and I shouldn't laugh, because it's quite shocking, but when she arrives back, she says, I want a vanilla twist, (laughs) and she gets shot. Like, in the chest. Yeah. Like, proper, like, boom. Like, a blood splatter. Like, this little girl. Yeah. So, I wanted a vanilla twist, you beast. (laughs) He says, well, why don't you have a vanilla twist? You might calm down a little. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the MPAA threatened an X rating if this scene wasn't cut. Yeah. Uh, And the distributor said to John Carpenter, just just give him a version without the scene, and then uh, we'll release it with it in there. And it worked. (laughs) They actually got away with it. It's... I, it's obviously very shocking. I was aware of this way before watching the film. Yeah. This is the scene that everybody talks about. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we ever, before this, we probably did, but I hadn't seen it. This is what, two years removed from The Exorcist? It is, yeah. So I know you're going to say, and it it actually reminds me of another film. Mm. It makes me think of Frankenstein. That's true. Actually. In the way that this little girl, you know, she went back, she has, she's innocent, she doesn't know what's going to happen, she doesn't know she's in danger, she gets killed um, by someone who doesn't really have any sort of remorse or anything, feel anything for that whatsoever. No. And then her dad plays a part in the plot going forward after he discovers her dead body. Yes. So I kind of feel like there's that little connection there with Frankenstein that I think John Carpenter is maybe going for in a very 70s way. And as we know, some of the best films ever made were released in the 70s because they're all groundbreaking and they all tried new things. Yes. So little Kim Richards being killed, I think it's a real clever move. Uh, Is it done for shock value? Probably. Still shocks me to this very day. I've seen it many times. Yeah. And... I suppose there's a, a countenance to it now because we know who Kim Richards went on to be. For us personally, being fans of the Housewives, we do realise she was but a she, You point out earlier, she's the actor of Escape from Escape Witch Mountain. Escape from Witch Mountain, just the year previous, which was, I think, a fairly big Disney film. Yeah. 
And um, I think this these were the days where ratings were less strict, uh, specifically in America, I think. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, did, did fans of Escape from Witch yeah. Mountain go to see her oh in God, this? Kim Richards is in a new <laughs> film. Let's go watch it. Escape from Precinct 13. Well, Escape this... from Precinct 13. Escape from Precinct 13. Yeah, crossover. <laughs> if we watch it back to back, did they join up? It could have been. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, very, very, very shocking scene. Um, and I think, I think an important one within the context of the film, because it goes to show that nothing is off the, the record now. Yes. That's not the phrase I'm looking for. Yeah, no, you, really, you know, any, yeah. anything is possible. Possible. Um, I mean, it's also the reason that it got some unexpected and unsolicited publicity in the late nineties. Uh, thanks to Mal Gibson. Uh, he described uh, how he likes films that went that go too far, and then described this scene in detail, adding he was sitting stunned in an Australian cinema watching a little girl get shot in the chest and die a bloody death. Uh, fans of Gibson, when they existed, who uh, mostly had not heard of the film, began seeking it out, and the good word of mouth turned it into a major success on uh, rental. Okay. <laughs> um... Yeah, okay, we'll have floats your boat. Thanks, Mal. <laughs> um, little Kathy's father, Lawson, pursues and kills the warlord before other gang members chase him into the Anderson precinct. <laughs> Leaving his kid's corpse on the side of the road. <laughs> he does, yeah, I kind of, I was expecting him to maybe put little Kathy's body in the back of the car. Um, but no, she's just left there. So in shock, Lawson is unable to communicate to what has happened to him. And he pretty much doesn't communicate for the rest of the film. No. Because he's in so much shock. Yeah. Um, I just... With Little... Why do you think that the gang members chose the ice cream van driver and Little Kathy to kill rather than the two elderly people? Well, it makes me question whether they knew the ice cream van driver because he does give that look. Yeah. Like, you know... He looks like he knows who they are. Yeah. So I don't know whether he was someone that's maybe was in the gang and got out of it, potentially. Yeah. And I think because she showed up and found a dead body, she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. And I, I get the idea that um, Kathy and her father are from quite a well-off background. Yeah. You know, they've got a nice car. They're both nicely dressed. Mm-hmm. So I get the idea of, the you know seen videos online where people go into the wrong area yeah. at the wrong time uh-huh. and they live to regret it. Yeah. You know, and I think essentially that's what this is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's playing on those fears. Yeah. Um, whereas the other people that they were looking at shooting mm-hmm. are part of that area. Yeah. They are people who are suffering in that area because they've been forgotten. Yeah. And left to sort of rot, really. Um, So I think that's interesting. Oh, definitely. So as Starker's prisoners are placed in cells, the telephone lines go dead and the station's electricity goes out. While Starker prepares to move the prisoners back onto the bus, the gang opens fire on the precinct using weapons fitted with silencers. In seconds, they kill Cheney, the bus driver... Claudel, Starker, and two officers accompanying Starker. Now, when Cheney goes out and he's shot with silencer, 
Julie's watching through the window. As he falls, Julie goes, she giggles to herself and says, Ah, Cheney fell down. <laughs> and then he doesn't get back up. But it's it's um, so Bishop's funny. reaction when he goes out and he comes back in. He's like, he didn't fall over. He was shot. He was shot. <laughs> that, that did make me giggle. Um, Bishop unchains Wilson from Starker's body and puts Wilson and Wells back into the cells. When the gang members begin a second wave of shooting, Bishop sends Lee to release Wells and Wilson, and the four of them repel an attempted invasion. However... Julie is killed during the firefight while Lee is shot and wounded in one arm. Put it out of a misery. Put it out, Julie. yeah. Quite, um, quite early on as well, actually. Yeah, I never knew someone getting shot could be such a sleigh as when Lee gets <laughs> shot in this film. And she just stands still, stares him straight in the eye, whacks him in the face and kicks him in the balls. Yes. I'm like, girl, fucking give us everything. I think it's a very creepy image of the gang members silently gathering outside the building. Mm. And there's this moment of horror, really, that would, you know, John Carpenter would go on to use again, you know, being able to create these creepy scenes. Um, I love how Lee Morven holds her own when the gang members enter. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit, Julie was maybe a little bit of a wet blanket. She was a wet blanket. Um, now, having watched the remake, it doesn't seem that bad. Because <laughs> <laughs> if it's something we don't like, it's a wet blanket yeah. in a serious situation. Wet is films. a wet blanket. <laughs> uh, the gang members remove all evidence of the skirmish to avoid attracting outside attention. And Bishop hopes that someone has heard the police weapons firing. But the neighbourhood is too sparsely populated for nearby residents to pinpoint the location of the noise. Wells is chosen to sneak out of the precinct through a sewer line and after hot wiring a nearby car, he is killed by a gang member hiding in the back seat. Um, Another great tense moment um, when you think he's safe and boom. Yeah. Um, Yeah, really great. It shows some great filmmaking by um, John Carpenter. Then we get uh, two police officers who are responding to reports of gunfire find the dead body of a telephone repairman hanging from the pole near the police station and then they call for backup. Um, one of them believes it's raining. <laughs> That's not rain. And then we pan to uh, the dead corpse hanging off the uh, telephone wire. Uh-huh. Uh, as the gang rallies for an all-out final assault, Wilson, Lee and Bishop retreat to the station's basement, taking the still catatonic Lawson with them. Um, Lee and Napoleon have a kind of, and I think this is very Howard Hawks, and I think Lee is a very Howard Hawks style yes. character, a very strong yeah. female who doesn't, um, who isn't ashamed to flirt and who, um, what's the phrase I'm looking for in the film? Um... Doesn't lose any. She doesn't sacrifice a single ounce of femininity. Doesn't sacrifice a single ounce of femininity in the process. Because um, Lee says to, to Napoleon Wilson, "I'm curious about one thing," and Napoleon says, "Just one." She says, "No, there are other things, but at the moment, this one interests me the most." He says, "What's what's that?" And she says, "Why didn't you climb through that vent and take off down the sewer in the other direction?" 
And he says, well, there are two things a man should never run from, even if they cost him his life. One is a man who's helpless and can't run with you. And Lee says, what's the other? To which Napoleon stares at her as she's so gorgeously lit. <laughs> <laughs> and we realise that a beautiful woman is the other thing that you don't run from. And I, I could imagine John Wayne saying that. Yeah. I, if you would have told me that's a line from Rio Bravo, I would absolutely believe uh-huh. you. Um, I thought it was... It, it's interesting because I, I think the film deals with uh, morality in, in different mm-hmm. ways and how the bad guy can be the good guy. Yeah. And someone like, you know, a character like Napoleon Wilson is could have done what a criminal would likely do mm-hmm. and save his own skin and piss off. Yeah. And he doesn't. And we never get, as far as I, I know, correct me if I'm wrong, but we never actually get his backstory. We don't. As to, yes, he's murdered people and it comes up in conversation, but why he murdered them, who those people were is never brought up. No. Um, so it allows us to see him as a hero we also have to remember that he probably isn't a decent guy. Mm-hmm. And we may be slightly invested in this romance, but we realise that it can't carry on because yeah. he's not a good guy. Mm-hmm. And he will, if he survives, be sent to prison yeah. for being a murderer. Mm-hmm. So they protect themselves with a large, durable metal sign as the gang violently storms the building. Bishop shoots a tank full of... Uh, ac- ac- acetylene gas? I typed it out, but still don't know. No, you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> acetylene gas, which explodes and kills all the gang members in the narrow basement hallway. The remainder of the gang flees as police arrive to secure the station. And I, I think that's also interesting that, that the gang isn't all killed. Uh-huh. Because the numbers seem huge. Yeah. Like massive. Uh-huh. Um, so the threat is still out there. So venturing down into the basement, the officers discover that Bishop, Lee, Wilson and Lawson are the only survivors. Lawson is strapped onto a stretcher and removed. Another stretcher is offered to Lee, but she declines it and exits unassisted. Because she's that kind of girl. She's that girl. She's that girl I thought she was. When an officer attempts to handcuff Wilson, Bishop angrily intervenes before asking Wilson to walk out of the station with him. Bishop says, it would be a privilege if you walked outside with me. He says, you're pretty fancy, Wilson. And he's like, I have moments. And that's it. Yeah, and that's it. And I think it, I think it's an interesting take on taking people as you see them. Yeah. Um, for someone like Bishop, he is unaware of Napoleon's background. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't... He doesn't take that into account when he's treating him, the way he treats him, should I say, mm-hmm. at the end of the film. As far as Bishop's concerned, here is somebody who has effectively saved his life that evening. Yeah. And therefore needs to be treated that way. Um, also knowing that it's not too long till he needs to go back to prison. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think it, it's an interesting take on uh, heroism, the anti-hero... Mm-hmm. Um, judging a book by its cover, 
I think all of that comes into play yeah. in the film, and it not in term not only in terms of criminal and the law, but also in terms of um, men and women. Yeah, a character like Lee is so integral to a film like this. Someone who maybe could have been a wet blanket mm-hmm. is a very strong female character. Yeah, and that's something that Howard Hawks. From what I've gathered, not having seen all of his films, does quite well. Yeah, the Haw- I think they actually refer refer to it as the Hawkian woman. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody who is yes feminine and isn't ashamed to be mm-hmm. feminine, but also is able to hold her own. Yeah, and if you've listened to any of our podcast episodes, we know that that is a massive thing for us. Yes. A massive tick. Uh-huh. Two thumbs up. Yeah. It's just a very well thought out, very well put together thriller that is still so intense to this day. Yeah, yeah. And it never, never forgets to be intense, never forgets to be thrilling or scary. No. And yeah, just top notch. And now for a film we can't say the same about. <laughs> so on Precinct 13 from 2005, directed by Jean-Francois Richette, who did Mezrine Parts 1 and 2, playing... In a City, All About Love, One Wild Moment, Blood Father, The Emperor of Paris, and M.A. 60 Varcracker. Um, Richard uh, spoke about what it was like directing his first American film. And uh, so really, I appreciate working with Rogue Pictures for this picture because I did everything I wanted. Oh, boy. Oh, we no. had a budget, but if you respected the budget, I was free. After the test screening, we had a very good score. People are stupid. And they gave to me a kind of final cut. So for my first American film, it was a great experience. And I spoke with a French director who worked in Hollywood. And he said to me, they'll kill you. You'll have no final cut. You cannot choose your music. You cannot this. You cannot that. And it's not true. Everything I wanted, they gave to me. Very, very good experience. And I think in this film, especially because it's violent, you kill the girls, you beat a dog, you know... If this film's a little different, it's because we had a good artists on this film with a smart studio too. A good studio and good producers that somehow created an awful piece of shit generic film. I love it's a win that you get to kill women and beat a dog. Yeah. Um, I suppose... Oh, he's that girl. Yeah. <laughs> very edgy. I... Yeah, that, by 2005, it wasn't very edgy. Uh... <laughs> Violence against animals and killing off the women. Yeah. First American film. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say it, and I'm going to be perfectly honest. This film is not for me. <laughs> this film, And I knew within the first 10 minutes, this this is not my kind of film. This no, 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 you didn't. No, you didn't. You knew within the first... 10 seconds. Yeah, that is true. That is The true. first 10 seconds. I did. The first well. line of dialogue <laughs> yeah. in this film told you you weren't going to like it. It's true, actually. <laughs> that is true. I'm a little bit of benefit of doubt. But I knew this film wasn't for me. And f- forgive me, I struggled to be invested in it. I'm going to say this before we go through the film. <laughs> to forgive myself for anything that I miss or don't care about or anything like that. Because this is not the kind of film I would choose to watch. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame because it has the Assault on Precinct 13 name attached to yeah. it. Um, but it, this is not the kind of film that I would have ever have gone out of my way to watch. 
Yeah, the original is like Robert Dyer's. It's made yeah. for straight and gay people and bisexuals. This film is made for 13-year-old boys who don't know what deodorant is. They've only just learned how to swear and they enjoy playing FIFA and the Scarface PlayStation 2 game. That's who this film is made for specifically. Very specifically, that exact target audience. And unbelievably, it wasn't written by a 13-year-old. It was written by a 36-year-old man by the name of James DeMonaco, who did the Purge films and TV series. I mean... Your first film was literally a ripoff of Assault on Precinct 13. How the fuck did you get this so wrong? Mm. Jack? This was before The Purge, though, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Once Upon a Time in Staten Island, Skimwalkers, The Negotiator, Ryan Caulfield, Year One, Hate, The Kill Point, Staten Island, Crash, TV series, as in, yes, the spin-off of the Oscar-winning film, Crash. It has a TV series. Oh, it's made on a budget of $30 million and it only made $35.2 million at the box office. Good. Yeah. Um, it's very much in keeping with a lot of the films at the time. The um I don't know what how I would describe it. Is it the Grand Theft Auto effect? I feel like it's the Bad Boys 2 effect. Yeah, maybe. I'm not gonna lie to you, because it looks like Bad Boys 2, the cinematography. I feel like every action film released after, or maybe there's one before it that Bad Boys 2 is taken from. I feel like they all had this cinematography, the sort of Michael Bay. Yeah. The sort of Michael Bay cinematography. Um, but it, it looks fucking naff. But like the anti-hero, like, you know, and we'll get into it, but the, how the cop is a bit edgy and then we're kind of also on the side of the criminal and we don't really know, mm. you know, like, I'm, I, d- I don't know when Grand Theft Auto 3 came out. I think I feel like it was before this or whatever, yeah. around that time. But that kind of aesthetic, that mm-hmm. kind of story to it, um, like Training Day. Yeah. You yeah. know, it, it's, we're cops, but we're edgy cops and we're making dirty humour and... You don't know if we're, you know, what side we're on or whatever, that shit. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of like, it's one of those films where if this was released these days and it didn't have the title on there that it's got, it would have been one we'd see the trailer for a thousand times in the cinema and they were just like, we're never watching that film. Yeah. Funny, yeah. funny enough, the best example of this um, over the past year or two was that plane. Bond the, from the same director as this, the one with Jared Butler, where it just looked like generic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, come on. Yeah. The same director. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, I'm sure there's lots of people out there who would see a trailer for fucking any John Waters film and like, well, that's trash. Why would anyone watch that? You know, so it's... It, it's personal preference. Yeah. I don't want to offend anyone. <laughs> But this is this is not for me. That nobody sat down and wrote this and thought some queer kid <laughs> in Coventry with an Audrey Hepburn poster is gonna love this shit. So I I get it. I understand. Yeah. You know, but doesn't mean I we're not gonna to. trash it. But this is our podcast, <laughs> and we're gonna compare it to the original because they they did make remake it. So we yeah. have to compare it. Yeah. So, with that being said, <laughs> it's time for our second feature presentation. I assume you know who I am. You're a gangster. On January 19th, 
We start with, and I quote this exact dialogue. <laughs> Listen to me. What are we talking about, really? Getting high? No. We're talking about a journey, man. A subconscious safari. A mental expedition. Okay? A mind track. The planet has been raped, pillaged, and fucked. And the mind is the only uncharted territory. And this shit is the ship. It's the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria, and you, you are fucking Magellan. Yeah, Magellan, whatever. Magellan. Oh, fuck, I spilled some. So what do you say, my, Ciber my Serbian motherfucking friend? Do you want to take a trip, or do you want to sit on your ass? I shit you not. As soon as Ethan Hawke finished this little monologue, we paused the film and we both said no. <laughs> Immediately, you are told, and it's the Lost Boys, the tribe effect, where obviously you've heard our podcast. We don't mind swearing. You know, we love a bit of swearing and we only use it when it's necessary. There's a certain surge of films in the 2000s where there would be a sequel or a remake of something from the 80s and 70s. And they would just have characters. Fuck this, fuck that, fuck this, fuck that. So, oh my God, that is so unnecessary. Yeah. Like, I, there's hardly any swearing in the original Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah. And it's so why I compare it to Lost Boys. There's little to no swearing in the original Lost Boys. But the second one, as soon as the film starts, I mean, the first two and a half minutes... You have more swearing in that time than you had in the entire first film. And it's overcompensating. Yes. It's overcompensating for a basic-ass film. Like, it's cringe. It's really cringe. Like, this did not need to open up like this. And Ethan Hawke, I believe Ethan Hawke is a fantastic actor who is... I don't know if he's won. Has he won an Oscar yet? No. No. I think he's fully in the line for winning one eventually because he's so good. He's such a good actor. He is fucking awful in this. And immediately he's overacting so much... It is cringe. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the edgy cop with a history thing. And it, it's also one thing I hate, 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 hate. And it, it's very much like the over-swearing, even though we've been maybe accused of swearing a little too much at times. For a purpose. But something I really, really blooming hate yeah. is the word raped used yeah. completely uh -huh. out of context yeah. of sexual assault. Yeah. I hate it. Uh -huh. I hate it. It's not necessary. No one talks like that. No. Do not talk it's like not that. Funny. It's not funny. It's not edgy. It's not anything. It's shit. Yeah. Do not use that. if you, Unless you are describing a sexual assault, do not use the word rape or raped. I hate it, hate it, hate it. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, it's... It's immature. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is what this film is. It's immature. It is. And it's not like there's loads of grossed out humour. It's nothing like that. But it, it feels, like Gary said, it was written by a 13-year-old. Yes. Who'd played too much Grand Theft Auto and watched yeah. Bad Boys 2. Yeah. Um, Mark Wahlberg was originally going to be in this role. Of um, course. Of oh, fucking course, He should have been in this role. Of course Mark Wahlberg was going to be in this role. 
Absolutely. Would have been perfect casting. Of course he was. He could have done a shit job in that like he does in everything else. Oh. So following a failed oh. sting operation in I which... Just, I actually... Sorry. I actually just imagined him in this role and yeah. it made me angry. I li- I could actually feel my, my body tense up. I hate that guy so much. Uh, following a failed sting operation in which two fellow undercover officers are killed months prior and Ethan Hawke killed any chances of this film being good with his overacting lines at delivery of the embarrassingly bad script. Um, Detroit Police Department Sergeant Jake Ronick begins to regularly abuse alcohol and painkillers whilst clinging to his unambitious assignment as desk sergeant at Precinct 13, which is due to be decommissioned. So it's during... So so what happens is that he's undercover, isn't he? Yeah. And he's pretending to be a drug dealer. That's why he's doing this over-the-top thing. And he's talking to the scary guy with an Eastern European accent. <laughs> um, oh, he's from Eastern Europe. Oh. <laughs> I've seen James Bond. I know how this goes. So his decision to leave a certain way leads to people being yeah. killed. That's when the dog the gets under- beaten up as well. The guy, so he said he's, Ethan Hawke is pretending to be nervous of this dog. And so this scary Eastern European guy starts punching the dog in the head. Yeah. Because, yeah. Apparently that's really cool. Apparently that's, yeah. What we need in this is shocking. <sighs> for a scene of a really throwaway scene uh-huh. that's not really actually got anything to do with the rest no. of the film. Anyway, yeah, I just. For me, you can shoot a kid, but don't be punching a dog. No. <laughs> don't clip that. <laughs> do not clip that. <laughs> Um, on New Year's Eve, because it's a New Year's Eve film, which is why we're discussing it, Ronick, Officer Jasper O'Shea and Secretary Iris Ferry maintain a skeleton shift. Now, Iris, uh, she's putting up Christmas decorations on New Year's Eve. <laughs> Very confusing. Did perfect time to put up Christmas decorations uh, whilst Winter Wonderland is playing. It kind of feels at this point where it's like, we wanted to be a Christmas film, but then we changed our mind at the last minute and decided to be a New Year's Eve film. Do you know what they really wanted well, at the end of the film? Her to turn around and say Happy New Year's Eve. Uh, Happy New... Fuck. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year, Sarge. Happy New Year, and, everybody. And so they just did it around that. Yeah. <laughs> like, we just really want the end of the film to be someone saying Happy New uh-huh. Year. So now we have to make it a New Year's film. Yeah. But we also really want to make it Christmas too. So we're introduced to her as the camera slowly goes up her sexy body. Um, and her outfit that looks like a uh, small teenager, a 13-year-old teenager, has created a woman character on Grand Theft Auto based on what he thinks is supposed to be attractive. Short skirt. Yeah, leather. She's got fishnets on. fishnets on. Yeah. She did not pick that outfit out herself. Um, And we get some great dialogue from her. First up, we get this kind of sex is evolutionary instinct, gentlemen. Example, Tiger Stadium. Bleachers empty, except me and a friend. We always get it on whenever and wherever we can. No one saw us, except for the left fielder. Let's just say he enjoyed the show, and I didn't mind the audience. Impulsive sex is in our genes, boys. Don't deny yourself. And then uh, a character in the station is like, 
I gotta go jump in the snow to cool my shit off. Yeah, so basically she's just saying, I like to have sex in public. Yeah. And I like when people watch, even though they haven't been invited to watch. And then she says... Which pretty much means she should get put on a register. She also says, I don't bed criminals, I fuck bad boys. (laughs) Just like Jesse Nelson. (laughs) I like bad boys for life. Jingle bad ball. (laughs) And uh, then uh, my other favourite bit of dialogue from her is... Come on, Sarge, it's my favourite holiday. I even put on my very special sexy holiday boots. Heads up, boys. Women don't talk like this. <laughs> what the fuck? Like, I mean, maybe if they're a porn star in a script written by men. Like, what, what are you doing? What, what is this? The problem is, I want to stand a woman who's not afraid of her sexuality. Mm-hmm. But this so obviously comes across as a guy who's written this. Yeah. And this poor actress uh-huh. is trying not to laugh. Yeah. Whilst reading the shit out uh-huh. on screen. The, it, it's cringe. Cringe, it's cringe, so cringe, cringe. Yeah. It's, it's, it's seriously, it's, it, it's not empowering when it's so blatantly written by men. Yeah. For, for the purpose of other men. To sexualize these characters for other men. That's all it's there for. Exactly. It's not because it's like, oh, look at her. She's sex positive. Go, girl. It's not that at all. It's, oh, look at this sexy woman talking all sexy. Yeah. And then we get psychiatrist Alexandra um, Sabian, who arrives to evaluate Ronick's fitness uh, for duty. Of course, she's also really sexy. Well, we don't see till later on how sexy she oh, is. She's a little covered up at sex, first. So got a big sexy. reveal. Crime boss Marion Bishop is, uh, and also we also when she's in this meeting, I didn't get much down from it, but the whole thing was like Ethan all like, oh yeah, you want to fuck me, don't you? Yeah, exactly. He says, uh, <laughs> "We both know you can't handle this shit just because you want to fuck me," and he steals his notes from her purse, mm-hmm. and she's just, despite being a doctor throughout the whole film, she's made. To seem incompetent because she wants to shag Ethan Hawke. Yeah. Incompetent because she's a beautiful woman who wants to wear a nice dress for mm-hmm. New Year's. Or she's an absolute wet blanket. It's so poor. You think the other woman's poorly written. Yeah. This one's just as bad. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, if he spoke like that immediately, you should be put on a fucking, on a list. Like, in, at work. Yeah. But it's should... so unprofessional. It's, it's sexual harassment. I'm a police officer. But I'm cool because I talk to women like this. Yeah. Because I, I'm so sexy that women can't help but be attracted to me and it's ruining their careers. Yeah. And, spoiler alert, kills them. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially. Just a reminder, this is directed by the man who thought it was really cool that he gets to, in his words, kill off chicks. Yeah. Crime boss Marion Bishop is arrested after killing an undercover policeman and is set to be transferred to prison with three other criminals. Um, he... <laughs> Did you see where he murdered this guy? In, in church. <laughs> Whilst they were singing Amazing Grace. Yeah. <laughs> Check out the acoustics on that. And he was... Yeah, and he's there like, oh, and the Lord looked down on me and the Lord this. And, oh, shut the fuck up. We've all seen I just don't get it. I don't... <laughs> so, I, again... You so know, cliched. This is so cliched. Yeah. It's three criminals he's arrested with are Anna, played by Aisha Hines, Smiley, who constantly refers to himself in the third person, played by Ja Rule, and just in case referring to yourself in the third person wasn't annoying enough, 
They're also joined by the unbearably annoying Beck, played by John Leguizamo, who is usually fantastic in everything he's in. Yeah. Um, he plays a drug addict. Yeah. Who seems to be really knowledgeable on his rights. Mm-hmm. And talk he's that guy that gets drunk and talks politics all the time even though yeah. no one asked very highly annoying highly yeah. highly highly annoying when a snowstorm shuts down the roads the prison transport is diverted to precinct 13 where an unprepared ronick prepare places the prisoners in cells and as they're arriving uh iris is like i want to see what that bishop is like i've heard a lot about him and Ethan Hawke's like, well, I thought you gave up, bad boys. It's like, ah, it's not New Year yet, Sarge. Oh, my God, stop. <laughs> bad boys, you work in a fucking prison. You see them all the time. Yeah. Like, come on. But that's the, but that's, but that's the joke. That's I know. That's the joke. It's, oh, so that she, she works in this police station and she likes having sex with bad boys. And, yeah, because... Women are like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to job where I put my life in danger just so I could see some bad boys. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Why was I forced to watch John uh, Leguizamo chat shit to Lawrence Fishburne whilst straining on the shitter? <laughs> Can I ask why this film decided to have that scene <laughs> where he's talking absolute crap? I go, <laughs> and then we... Cut to uh, the uh, <laughs> revelation that he's having a shit right in front of Florence Fishburne. <laughs> why, why was that necessary? It was made by the same director who said, and I quote, it's really cool that I got to kill off chicks and beat up dogs. <laughs> also, that's it. That's the premise set up. So that's how they get to the police station in this one. Mm-hmm. If you're really cool, Mr. Director, and you know, you're like, oh, I get to kill off chicks, wherever. You know what would have been really fucking cool and edgy? Killing off a kid like in the original. Should have done that. Might have made it a little more interesting. I suppose they didn't want to do the same thing. And that's where they went wrong. <laughs> but the problem is they have got an, a twist yeah. in the tale, haven't mm-hmm. they? Which kind of makes that difficult. Yeah. Because every film has to have a twist mm-hmm. in 2000. Uh, masked gunmen cut off the precinct's communications and electricity after the New Year's countdown and attack the station, killing the deputies before demanding that Bishop be handed over. Ronick kills one of the attackers and finds he is an undercover cop working under Captain <gasps> Marcus Duval of Precinct 21. Oh my god. What a revelation. CSI has a lot to answer for. Um, yeah, it's... Uh... I think they were too scared to do the cops good, bad guys bad mm-hmm. sort of mixed. So then they had these criminal police be the real bad guys mm-hmm. rather than a gang. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, think, I think maybe they were scared to offend or they just wanted to make it a twist. Mm-hmm. They like. Every film has to have a twist at a certain point. Yeah. I blame you, Sixth Sense. Yeah. Every film has to have that revelation. Like, oh my God, the calls are coming from inside the house. Yeah. It's Precinct 21 and they're the bad guys. So mm-hmm. we have to work together 
good and bad. You know, yeah. it, it's it's actually strangely enough, um, quite a cliche in wrestling. Mm-hmm. Can the good guy and the bad guy uh, work together <laughs> as a tag team against the real bad guys? <laughs> Can the Rock and Stone Cold work together against Vince McMahon? Yeah, and. Three fans of this, three fans people of the, might get that. <laughs> hey, fans of this film will get that reference. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> um, did, did you enjoy Dr. Alexandra Sabian in a glittery backless dress, not being able to handle the situation? Yeah. Um, she believes that she can leave as they don't want anything to, from her. Uh-huh. Uh, she opens the door and someone shoots at her and she flies back. She's like, oh, no. Yeah. No, I can't. I can't be a doctor and be bad under. Oh wait, she's a doctor, so she should be bad under pressure. Yeah, gorgeous figure though. She's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that's the real reveal. That's that's the reveal. Oh my god, she's a doctor and she's got uh-huh. a figure. Wow, really that she looks good in a backless dress and intelligent. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Better make her a wet blanket. No woman can be too perfect, can that's they? True. Bishop explains that Duval and his team are corrupt and were formerly his business partners. They now plan to eliminate him to preserve their secret. And the precinct staff and criminals form an uneasy truce with Smiley. Uh, no, the, with the gang. And uh, while Smiley continuously refers to himself in the third person still. And it's getting unbearable at this point. Heavily outnumbered and outgunned, Ronick releases the prisoners and arms them to help defend the precinct. Their combined efforts repel several more attacks, eventually leading to a stalemate. Another officer, Capra... stale. <clears throat> yeah. Another officer, Capra, arrives and is shot at by the corrupt officers, but makes it inside. But Bishop suspects him of being sent by Duval when he discovers an unlocked back entrance. Excuse me. And funny enough, that wasn't worked <laughs> into the dialogue in the film. No. What we do get, though, is three lots of great dialogue. Well... Can I just uh, pinpoint something? After Reservoir Dogs, what yeah. does every action crime film have to have? A standoff with guns. It's true. It's true. And we get one of those. Because yeah. we don't know if they can work together or not. Uh-huh. So we got some great dialogue. Anna, who is quite a tough, tough girl. Um, You know, dresses quite manly. Gender's not a thing to her. And, you know, great, great character. But even she's not safe from the dodgy script when she says to uh, O'Shea, you either flirting with me or clocking my game because you don't trust me. I don't like your beady little eyes all over my goodies. So turn the fuck away. I don't understand the dialogue. No. Because she is wearing quite a loose fitting outfit. She has a hood up quite baggy, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't understand what goodies means in that context. Yeah. Um, it's, it's bad writing. It's really bad it is. It is bad writing. You can have a female character who doesn't have to allude to sex, yeah. either being ogled by someone mm-hmm. or being wanting to have sex in public yeah. or somebody, you know, having to defend herself against accusations of finding her patient sexually mm-hmm. attractive. You know, you you can have a woman that doesn't have that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's okay, mate. It's okay. 
you can have a female character who doesn't have to play into mm-hmm. sexual fantasies. It continues because then we get um, Smiley talking to uh, Sabian and he's like, you're manipulative, weak knees and that sexy copper complexion. You're definitely an Aries, baby. And she's like, you're pretty good. And he's like, Smiley thanks you. Shut the fuck up. And then we get I that sex icon Iris talking with uh, Lawrence Fishburne where she's like, I can't stop thinking about sex. I usually think about sex a lot, but this is crazy. <sighs> Women do not talk like that. Lawrence Fishburne then, because he's a man, he's really intellectual, he's like, sex and death are very closely related. The Greeks called it eros and thanatos, love and death, or sex as a way of nullifying thoughts of dying. Ooh, isn't he intelligent? But this is the idea of the anti-hero, mm-hmm. of him being, yes, he's a crime boss, but he's also very well read. Yeah. And he's also very sexy. And th- this secretary, she loves bad boys. This is the perfect bad boy. Uh-huh. Um, and this isn't this isn't even a, a sort of early 2000s sort of thing. You know, you go back to, like, Godfather and stuff, yeah. you know, the anti-hero crime boss. It is, you know, it's it's been in films for many, many years from the outset. You know, the yeah. gangster film is always the anti-hero, mm-hmm. really, isn't he? Yeah. Beck and Smiley, meanwhile, secretly conspire to escape. Simultaneously, the rest of the defenders plan for Anna and Sabian to escape in Capra's SUV. When Beck and Smiley sneak out, they are killed by Duval's men, providing the distraction which allows Anna and Sabian to drive off, but they are ambushed by Duval's right-hand man, Carhain, who kills Anna, having been hiding in the back seat, whilst Duval kills Sabian after she refuses to cooperate. Um, so when Beck gets killed um, mm. in this film... Yeah. I, I've got the trivia in my notes at this point, but I don't think it is at this point. But either way, he gets killed. Um, in preview screenings, audiences really liked the character. I really don't know who this audience was. <laughs> and were disappointed to see him killed off. So the director took this as an advantage to shoot a close-up of Beck's body hitting the ground with a bloody bullet wound through his forehead. That'll show him you like the character. Oh, you're going to suffer. Watch this. <laughs> Fucking weird. What is wrong with this guy? It's so weird. But it, it's that Grand Theft Auto sort of sensibility, isn't it? I do find like that edgy. It, it's, yeah. Uh, I don't, straight. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, heterosexuality. That's all I can think of to describe it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It is. It's that 4chan family yeah. guy watching heterosexuality. Yeah. Absolutely. The life of the heterosexual is a sad and boring place. Um, when the snowfall subsides, Duval calls in a corrupt SWAT team uh, who lands on the roof of the precinct. The defenders flee through a utilities tunnel underneath the building. Emerging from the tunnel, they find themselves surrounded by Duval's men. The traitor is revealed to be O'Shea and not Capra, which is funny because I could have sworn within the film itself, and I left it out of my notes, but I could have sworn he was revealed to be a traitor earlier on. Um, no. No. They think it's um, Capra, but it's, yeah, it's O'Shea. 
Well, as Duvall prepares to kill the others, Bishop secretly plants a flashbang grenade on O'Shea, mortally wounding him. In the confusion, Iris and Capra flee in Duvall's SUV. Kahane shoots out the tires, causing the vehicle to crash and knock Capra unconscious, but Iris manages to kill Kahane after a struggle. Duvall chases Ronick and Bishop into a nearby forest where they ambush and kill the remaining forces. However, Duvall shoots and wounds Bishop before being killed by Ronick, who is himself injured in the process. Following this, an injured Bishop takes Ronick's gun and flees, and Ronick promises to personally arrest him in the future. I'll get you one day. <laughs> when Iris arrives with police and firemen, Ronick claims that only he and Duvall's gang are present, knowing that Bishop can't go too far, but wanting to give him the illusion of liberty. As the authorities secure the area, Ronick and Iris leave the forest as the sun rises and she says, Happy New Year. Sarge. 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 Uh, and then we get generic assault. Uh, <laughs> like we did there. By KRS-One and Graham Revel. Uh, it's a rap song. And I'd like to read you some of my favourite lyrics on it. First up is, So what does it mean, assault on precinct 13? You're about to see just what the dirt bring. It's working, that force. I have been searching. Like Lawrence Fishburne when it's time to hurt things. Ethan Hawke, man, he faced all of that. I hold the mic like Jar, how'd that baseball bat? My other favourite lyrics are... <laughs> lyrics that you're about to see. Like, this is the end credits. I've <laughs> just seen it. <laughs> More fitting for the end credits, my other favourite lyrics are... Wow, what an ending. What a conclusion. They thought they was winning, but they really was losing. He thought he was sinning, but really he was proving. That leadership keeps it moving, steady cruising. Surprisingly not nominated for a Razzie. No. No. <laughs> Uh, the film was nominated for a choice rap star in a movie for Darwin's yeah. performance. And that's, and that's all I can remember, yeah, actually. <laughs> that's, that's Assault on Priest of 13, 2005. Ending with a song that's just as uh, badly written as the rest of the film. Yeah. Um, to me, it's very basic. There's nothing to it. There's no nuance to it. I, I think the twist sort of negates a lot of what the original was trying to do. Yeah. So it doesn't feel like a faithful um, remake. No. It feels like it's taken the name and the general sort of yeah. idea yeah. and made it into a random Channel 5 Film. It's kind. It's the kind of film that I probably would have walked in on my dad watching in, <laughs> in the living room, and I would say, "Oh, what are you watching?" And he would like, "I saw it on Precinct 13. I was like, "Oh, the remake." And he went, "Oh, he wouldn't know." And then I probably <laughs> would have walked in on him watching it a few months later. <laughs> uh, not Channel Five, ITV2. ITV Two, ITV Two, and I'd be like, "What are you watching?" And he'd be like, "I saw it on Precinct 13. I'd be like. You've seen this. Like, Have I? I'm like, yeah, I remember having the conversation. <laughs> like, oh. Because he wouldn't have remembered a single fucking thing. No. And I, I can assure you, in a year's time, if Gary turns around and says, who starred in the Assault on Precinct 13 remake, I would probably say Mark Wahlberg. 
Because <laughs> it's just, it's forgettable. It's generic. It it's it's one of those films that I actively would not watch. Yeah. Because I know that I would feel this way after watching. Yeah. There are no surprises because I knew it would be this way. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Well, let's uh, see who's going to win uh, <laughs> out of two films. Starting with cinematography, soundtrack, and kills. Uh, in 1976, you know, it feels like John Carpenter's making a grindhouse film. It's got that grainy sort of look mm. to it. Perfect camera angles. Very 70s. As always. Yeah, it's so 70s. And it's so atmospheric. It makes so much great use of just one location. Amazing. And you have scenes at night and scenes in the dark. And I can fucking yeah. see. I yeah. can see what's happening. Yeah. But yet I still understand that it's nighttime and it's dark. I know. Isn't that Amazing. incredible? Yeah. Modern filmmakers take fucking notes. Yeah. I still want to be able to see what's happening. Mm-hmm. The kills are very bloody and brutal, yet they're not completely over the top. Um, apart from obviously Kathy's death. But, you know, it gets the job done, you know. It, At the end cause... of the day, you only needed Kathy's death yeah. to be that way. Yeah. You only needed uh-huh. one shark. Because if you overdo it, yeah. you become a Serbian film. Exactly. You know, if you do too much, yeah. then it's sort of... Little, poor little Kathy's death doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it's one of a hundred. Uh-huh. And the soundtrack, um, fun fact about it, John Carpenter wrote it in three days. <gasps> he made three to five separate pieces of music, edited them in accordingly... And uh, it didn't even become available to buy until 2003. Wow. And, you know, again, like we've already said, it's one of his best. And it's it feels so ahead of its time as well. I mean, it's not the first film to use synths, but the way it's used within an action film, it just feels so ahead of its time. And it's just amazing. And it always stands out. Yeah. And it's also quintessentially John Carpenter. You hear it and you're like, that's John Carpenter. Yeah. You know, even if you're not massively familiar with all his filmography, Mm -hmm. you hear it. You only have to watch, you know, his main two or three films. Yeah. That's John Carpenter. Yeah. Absolutely. 2005. Let's hear it for everyone at the back. They've said it a thousand times and they're about to tell you again. It looks like every fucking film released in the 2000s. Specifically, though, for this one, mm-hmm. it looks like every forgettable action film released in the yes. 2000s. We get some really bad, shaky camera work at times, like in EastEnders when something's about to happen and the camera starts shaking. Um, there's nothing exciting and about the curls. the jukebox switched yeah. off. There's nothing exciting about the curls. Someone gets stabbed in the eye of an icicle. That's, that happened. That's the most interesting um, one. And the soundtrack is fucking boring. Nothing happens in the soundtrack. It's so generic. I don't remember. It's like it. you're remaking a you're remaking a film with an iconic soundtrack. Put some effort in. Yeah. Um I just wrote Doll with a hint of snow. Yeah. For cinematography. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, the kills are mostly shooting with a little stabbing and an icicle to the eye and blah blah blah. Yeah. And the soundtrack, yeah, whatever. You know, I think Rob Zombie's Halloween is one of the worst films ever made. I think it's one of the worst remakes, one of the worst John Carpenter remakes. But at least the soundtrack was fucking... At least it was half decent. At least it copied the original in points and then added its own things to it. Mm. Like, you look at Suspiria, which I believe to be, you know, the best original remake duo ever. 
the new score tries something different, but it actually makes the music a prominent part of the film. Mm. I really think if you're remaking a film where the soundtrack is a big part of it, you should make some effort, but there's no effort here. And, and the director was like, oh, I've got to choose my own music. Really? And that's what you chose? <laughs> Awful. You know, just go a little left field. Go a little... You be synthy. Yeah. You know? Do Add some like needle drops. You, it, you know, yeah. Make it a freaking jazz soundtrack. Yeah. Do something different. Yeah. Like, really, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But... Props for trying. But it doesn't even seem like they're trying. They're not trying. Any of they're the not film. trying. Of course, he had a great time making his first American film. It's piss easy. Yeah. I wonder what his other films are like. I know. Well, Plane's one of them. So there we go. Um. Yeah. So it all goes to the original. To absolutely no one's surprise. True. Next up, we have characters. God. Ethan Bishop, played by Austin Stoker in 1976, and Jake Roenick, played by Ethan Hawke in 2005. 1976, it felt like they were doing something with this. It felt progressive. There was something, you know, it's exciting. Like seeing a film with a black lead that isn't a black exploitation film where the lead is an action hero. That's great. That is so progressive. Yeah. And he's so likable and it's such a good performance. Like you actually gave a shit about what happened to this character. Yeah. And we got a little bit of history as well. Yeah. A little bit of characterization. Yeah. We actually cared about him. Yeah. But it wasn't this forced anti-hero narrative. Exactly. It isn't this, you know, cliched, oh my God, I'm a cop who failed and now I'm trying to get over it. Yeah. Sort of narrative. Because we've seen that so many times, even before 1976, we've fucking yeah. seen yeah. it. You know, and that's what we get in the remake. Yeah. Ethan Hawke is just completely overacting. It's jarring, um, especially when it's the first thing you see in the film is his overacting. Yeah. And, you know, we see him sexually harassing his psychiatrist. It's like, come on. How are we supposed to like this guy? We're not a certain audience, you yeah. know? It's, it's yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Like, just imagine people at home going, oh, yeah. Yeah, I bet she does want to fuck you. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah, a real cool guy like you. Yeah. yeah. I bet she really wants to fuck you, yeah, despite having... Pages and pages and pages and pages of his trauma and his psychological <laughs> issues right in front of her. She definitely, definitely <laughs> wants to get in his pants. Uh, so yeah, Austin Stoker's the winner. Napoleon Wilson, played by Darwin Joston in 1976, and Marion Bishop, played by Lawrence Fishburne in 2005. Uh, and it's not like Lawrence Fishburne does a bad job. No. It's no. fine. He's Lawrence Fishburne. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually feels like Lawrence Fishburne is the only one that watched the original. Because this character is a little more subdued, um, which works for the quiet and intimidating tough guy character trait. Yeah. That is, you know, like you said, very John Wayne. Um, but he's completely outdone by Darwin Joston, who brings way more charisma to the role and actually makes the character feel like a new character despite being seen so many times before. Whereas Lawrence Fishburne is like, we've seen this character so many times before. We have seen that character many times before. And I'm, I'm sure Lawrence Fishburne was maybe at the time fed up of playing <laughs> those kind of characters. But he doesn't phone it in. I, I like Lawrence Fishburne a lot. Um, I like his sort of acting style and 
I think he definitely has a screen presence, yeah. which works to his advantage mm-hmm. in the film. I don't think the character's interesting. No. And I think that's where it fails. Yeah. Where I like in the original where the character is more up for interpretation. Yeah, because they never say, you know, why he's this big tough guy or no, what he's done. Why, Whereas yeah. in 2005, it's constantly, oh, you ripped someone's spine out, didn't you? Oh, you did this, you did that. It's yeah. like the Chip Norris jokes. It's like, come on. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. So you don't, we don't need this. We know he's meant to be a tough guy. It's fine. Yeah. It's yeah. a darling Justin. Julie is played by Nancy Loomis in 1976, and Iris Ferry is played by Dre DiMatteo in 2005. Would you maybe change no, that? Absolutely no, absolutely not. And I'll tell you why, because these are both uh, going to be swapped around, because I've realised I've mixed it up. Yeah, no, you're yeah. absolutely right. Julie, played by Nancy Loomis in 1976, <laughs> and uh, Dr. Alex Sabian, played by Maria Bello in 2005. And I'm keeping that in because I'll just let you know, these two characters are interchangeable in it 2005. Is. It's true. And completely forgettable. Nancy Loomis is, she's camp. She's having the worst day of her life. Um, she's entertaining to watch. It's not like, you know, she's the wet blanket where you're like, oh God, just kill her off. It's like, no, actually, I, I, I'm kind of enjoying watching Nancy Loomis here. She's a damp blanket. Yeah. She is, and she probably could have done a lot more than she did. Um, as a character, she hasn't got a massive amount of screen time, but Nancy Loomis is a queen, and I've, I've loved her in everything that she's been in, and she has that sort of dry delivery yeah. that I love so much. Um, that probably is why I'm more akin to her. Yeah. <laughs> I may have been accused of having a dry delivery uh, from time to time. Excuse me. Oh, wow. <laughs> Dr. Alex Sabian, on the other hand, um, Dr. Alex Sabian is the wettest of wet blankets. Oh. And she feels like a female character written by a straight man in 2005. I feel like she doesn't deserve the title Doctor. No. Because she. Because even when she's under threat at one point before her, her death, she is the cowering woman in the corner. Yeah. And it's like, oh, come on, please, don't, don't. I don't want to see this. Yeah. You know, because what's happened before as well, you know, have that moment where you mm-hmm. pluck up the strength and you clock someone over the back of the head. Or, you know, or am I just referencing this year's EastEnders? Yeah. Christmas episode. Um, but, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, I just course. wanted her to have something more to her. Mm-hmm. And all I can remember from her is Ethan Hawke being a dick yeah. to her. It's so annoying. So yeah, Nancy Loomis is the winner. And finally we have Lee, played by Laurie Zimmer in 1976. And Iris Ferry, played by Drea DiMatteo in 2005. Um... I mean, Laurie Zimmer, she is a queen who gets things done. Yeah, she gives us a sense of sexuality. She gives yeah. us a hint. Yeah. There's a little hint of romance there. You know, she's not a sexless character, but also it's not her only character trait. Mm-hmm. She's a strong-ass woman who will be able to look after herself, who isn't afraid of speaking up to a man yeah in any context whether bad guy or not say this is how i feel 
in the in the remake, sexuality is all she has. She talks like some babe station. She do- oh my god, she talks like some babe station. Yeah. Again, just to repeat myself, feels like a female character written by a straight man in two thousand five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So of course, Laurie Zimmer, you're our winner. It's like this is how I want women to talk. Yeah. This isn't how I have noticed women talk. Uh huh. This is how I would like women to yeah, talk. Absolutely. Now on to our final few awards. Biggest queen has got to go to Lee in the original. It's Lee. There, there's no competition. It's Lee. Yeah. It takes a true queen to just stand still and give a guy who shot her a staring contest before smacking him and kicking <laughs> him in the balls. Biggest gasp, I mean, is there any contender? It has to be Kim Richards getting shot in the original. Poor little Kathy, you know. Yeah. I, I just don't know what else to say. Yeah. she's She got a house stolen from her. Kyle didn't look after her like a real sister it's true. would. It's true. And she didn't get a vanilla twist no. in the end. Gasp. Best dialogue I have. Black? For over 30 years. <laughs> I, I did go with I wanted vanilla twist. <laughs> <laughs> and that's camp. Something I'm sure we could both agree on. Nancy Loomis witnessing a cop getting shot and thinking he just fell over in the original. <laughs> yeah. I guess you've been framed. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think the uh, her shouting fail army no. afterwards was appropriate. But... Um, with that being said, of course, the winner is the 1976 original. Yes. Uh, ratings for both. I give the original 10 inconveniences for Nancy Loomis out of 10. I give the original 9 vanilla twists out of 10. Uh, I give 2005 two shags in Tiger Stadium out of 10. <laughs> um, I just went with two poorly written female characters out of 10. And where you can find both films, the original is bought for choice, because uh, that's the one you need to watch, thankfully. It's a good thing. Original is on Blu-ray, DVD, Video On Demand, Amazon Prime, ITVX, Mubi, Shudder and Plex. Whereas the remake is available on DVD, video on demand, and ITVX. But forget I said that, you don't need to watch it. If you enjoyed the original, I recommend Night of the Living Dead. If you enjoyed the original, I recommend Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. And if you enjoyed the remake, I recommend watching VFW, which is very much Assault on Precinct 13, but without the name. Yeah, um, I recommend if you enjoyed the remake, then watch Dread, which yeah. is a fantastic film. It is. Watch that instead of the remake. Yeah. Actually, just watch that instead. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's what we should say from now on when it's a a shitty Mm -hmm. film. Just say, don't watch this. Yeah. Watch this. And if you did watch it and you enjoyed it, then... That's fine. Check out your taste in films. Yeah, no, that's that's good. That's cool. And if you have watched it and you didn't enjoy it and we're sorry to hear you watched it. Now on to our best and worst, our final ever, our final best ever. and worst new releases of the month. And wasn't it a good month? It, it was the best hell. way to end this on. Um, so good. I mean, going forward, I I'm very much an on air thing. We, you know, we're recording. I'm just announcing this right now. I mean, we should just have it open. The best and worst go forward weekly to new or old releases, whatever. What have we been watching? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, but whilst we are on new releases for our best and worst, the best of the month for me is Godzilla Minus One. The second best Godzilla film for me. Absolutely stunning, phenomenal mixture of human and monster drama. Uh, I actually cared about the characters. It's just top tier kaiju. Um, 
I agree. Fantastic film. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's lower budget really helps. Yeah. I think it felt more human. It was more akin to a war film, mm-hmm. um, but didn't lose any of the sort of Godzilla that we know yeah. and love. Uh, just really, yeah, fantastic film. Um, really close call, but my favourite of the month was May, December. Yeah. Um, loved, I feel like I've loved every Todd Haynes film. Um, I really get what this film was going for. Mm-hmm. I really appreciated it. I thought Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore were fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was weirdly kind of humorous at times, yeah. but then really deeply quite effective. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. Loved it, loved it, loved it. I completely agree. Uh, worst of the month, I'm sure it's the same for both of us. It is Family Switch. Family Switch. Netflix yes. somehow took a film, a body swap film, McGee. Um, Made it. And they somehow made it not fun. Mm. Like, I, I don't know how that's possible. Like, yeah. it's so badly acted, you don't believe that the people are who they've switched with, which is rare for a body swap film. It's just it's bullshit. It just doesn't work at all. It's just boring, 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 generic shit. There was no nuance to the acting yeah. once the switch had happened. It's also supposedly a Christmas film. Yeah. The start and the end are the only Christmas scenes. Yeah, it, I, I feel it's one of those films where Christmas is stuck onto it. Yeah. To make sure people watch it every year. It's a Netflix film, so you know how they just like to make films and just plonk them there and then people might watch it in years mm-hmm. to come. Uh, Honourable mentions. Uh, Can new... I ask a question? Yeah. And we'll, you know, we'll do it on the podcast. Yeah. If anything, we're very honest. Uh-huh. When did we watch Family Switch? December. The start of December. Because I've did you not got it? to put it into my <laughs> life. <laughs> I'm here like, I swear we watched it and it was awful, but I haven't actually put it on my diary in Letterboxd. <laughs> so anyone who follow him, follows me on Letterboxd... Um, they think you're lucky enough to have not seen it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, honourable mentions across new and old releases. I made December is on mine. Um, I'm sure Godzilla minus one is on yours. Absolutely. Uh, also, it's a wonderful knife. It's a gay old slasher film, which you should absolutely go and watch. Yeah, very fun. Uh, the Grinch, 1966. Kiss Kiss Bam Bang. I'm going to go through these quite fast because, like I said, it was a good month. I've got a lot of them. Such a good month. The Royal Tenenbaums, Sleepless in Seattle, Eileen, Femme. I, I do want to say. Please, 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 please go and watch Femme because it deserves as much support as possible and it's fantastic. It's so, so intense. So good. Wonka was better than expected. Fallen Leaves, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, Give Me Pity. Again, please, please, please seek out this oh film. It God. needs to be seen. I loved Give Me Pity and I was listening to the soundtrack on repeat yeah. the next day. And so the Sweet Sue, you know, two films that really haven't been seen by that many people, but they are fantastic. The Red Shoes, The Family Stone, Fantastic Mr. Fox, The Boy and the Heron, and Priscilla. Yeah, love The Boy and the Heron, love Priscilla, go out and watch them. So many five-star films. Um, Have you done that thing again? No, because we recorded at the end of the month. So we talked about Tish and Saltburn last month. We did. Oh, that's there, there and I remember go. because you mentioned Black Narcissus and that was the last one. Before. And that's the last yeah. time we'll do that now. Isn't that? End of an era. 
Um, but yes, tell us what you've been watching. We are Horrorcore Trash over on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Horrorcore Trash on Twitter. I'm Delight Night 2 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram, and GazCruz92 on Twitter. I'm Chris Barker823 on Instagram and Letterboxd. And give us a rate review and subscribe on iTunes, like a follow and everything else. We also have another Gasp Horror Festival coming up this year. Go to Gasp Horror Fest and uh, see what it's all about. Now, we have an episode coming for you on Sunday, New Year's Eve. Our 20 best horror films of the year. Oh, no spoilers. Well, I mean, we've already spoke about one of them. <laughs> um, and then Friday next week, we're doing something a little different this January. To start the month, we will be discussing dump month films. So we're doing one good that didn't quite get the attention it deserved, and one that deserved to be a dump month film. So first up, we'll be discussing Matinee. Yes. Joe Dante's matinee. And then for the other half of the month, we're going back to Japanuary. And that means next month's original versus remake on the last Tuesday of the month is going to be the grudge original versus remake threesome all by the same director. Um, yeah, really looking forward to that. We haven't spoken about dump month before, have we? Not on the podcast. The no. idea that January is the time yeah. where studios would dump films that you don't think do very well. Yes. So really excited to uh-huh. look at those films within that context. Absolutely. And uh, we have many more themes coming up next year, but tune into our next episode where we will tell you what we're doing. <laughs> we'll be back same time, same place on New Year's Eve. Bye. Bye.